Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Naked Reflections. You might think we're an austere bunch here at the Wolf Institute, focusing as we do on the monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Well, this week, we're spreading our wings. Paganism is our subject, and of course, it's a tradition that's deeply embedded in our culture, even at the most grassroots level. James Whitting's point about hidden pagan traditions is well made in his essay, Trick or Treat, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website. It's no surprise that trick-or-treating is one of the few remnants of an autumnal celebration whose origins are lost in the historical collage of Christianity and paganism. Because of this, we can expect children to continue to trick-or-treat long into the future, much to the dismay of homeowners and the elderly. With me to discuss paganism are Professor Ronald Hutton of Bristol University, the UK's leading expert on pagan culture and history, and Dr. Kitty Alone, Research Fellow and Outreach Manager at the Wolf Institute. Ronald, in your book, The Druids, you suggest that pagan traditions are embedded in our popular culture. What did you mean? I mean that there are a number of ways in which the pagan ancient world has come down to us. Uh, one way is through folk customs and traditions like seasonal festivals and superstition. Another way is simply through the love affair which uh, the Christian centuries have always conducted with the literature and art and mythology of the pagan ancient world, the Greek and the Roman, the North, Norse and the Irish myths. So there's an enormous heritage here, which is simply part of our civilization. Kitty, Ronald touched on the diversity, if you like, and the sort of connections. Um, we talk about paganism in the ancient world. Can you see the connections between that and North European traditions? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as Ronald's alluded to, you just have to scratch the surface and they're there. And the obvious examples are sort of Easter, Christmas, Halloween, one of the things that fascinates me are the more sort of quirky pagan rituals that somehow survived. The one I'm thinking of in particular is something called sin eating, which existed into the early 20th century in, in England. And at its heart is this very sort of pervasive intuition about how moral behaviour can be offset, or unloaded onto an object or a person. And um, for example, the sin eater would eat bread over the corpse of the recently deceased. And in doing so would consume the unconfessed sins of the deceased and therefore they would be absolved and this may seem as i said superstitious and pagan but actually it's it's an intuition that carries deep into christianity in fact because at the very heart of christianity what is there but a, a figure who has all of the sins of humanity placed onto him so this idea of moral transference is very pagan in nature but certainly exists still particularly in christianity ronald kitty used the equivalence of pagan and superstition at that point. Do you agree with that? Superstition is a loaded word, and uh, perhaps I was incautious in using it myself. It's a useful shorthand for beliefs about the way the world works, which have no demonstrable scientific basis, but make people feel good about getting through life. 
and are handed down from previous generations as uh, a useful way of doing things. Ronald, I wonder if you could pick up on Kitty's connection between the kind of major religious festivals of Easter and Christmas in particular and its pagan origins. I'm delighted to reply to Kitty when it comes to festivals like Christmas and Halloween. I'm very fond of them myself and have spent a slice of my academic life studying them. At Christmas, for example, most of our current customs are 19th century, the Christmas tree, Santa Claus, Christmas stocking, Christmas cards, uh, the Christmas dinner with the turkey in the centre for the family. And yet, fundamentally, what we're doing is prehistoric because the bits we often take for granted, having a Christmas dinner at all, having Christmas decorations, having Christmas presents, are all part of the package with which people celebrated midwinter under many different names a couple of thousand years ago. So there is this massive continuity, even if the details, the precise forms change. And I often wonder where this sort of mistrust or suspicion of paganism come from. It's always loaded with sort of a negative connotations. You know, to be pagan is something scary, something bad, something out of the realms of morality. When did paganism as a concept, as a religion, take on this loaded connotation? As soon as Christianity began to make converts, because the word itself is Christian in coinage. It means somebody who adheres to the Pargus religion, which means the religion of the locality. The Pargus is the local unit of government in the Roman Empire, and it just means people who observe the old religions, the rooted religions. Uh, and there's a dismissive kind of gloss to that, as opposed to the recently appeared charismatic, fundamentally true and redemptive Christian religion. And ever since then, Christianity has defined itself against two great native others, in other words, others that occur in our own communities or are supposed not to occur, and they are paganism and Satanism. What separates paganism and Satanism? That's fascinating because to me, sort of intuitively, Satan seems like quite a pagan character. That is an interesting view on it. In many ways, they're completely incompatible. Because to be a Satanist or to have a look at Satanism, you must accept or be interested in Christian theology. Because after all, Satan is a Christian, a Judeo-Christian character. He's part of the Christian story. Whereas paganism isn't, it's a bundle of completely different stories. The way in which early Christians assimilated the two was very simply to tell people that the goddesses and gods of the pagan ancient world were demons serving Satan. And that's the way the two came together. And as a result, there is this cross-contamination and infection between the two in the eyes of devout Christians and people in a kind of post-Christian world who don't really know very much about either ever since. It's a bit of a shame because we've gained so much from the pagan ancient world. So much of our sense of culture is based upon the stories, the images, the traditions of the Greeks and the Romans in particular. Of course, Satan was just a fallen angel in the Hebrew Bible and then developed so much more. I suppose you'd agree with the statement that monotheisms by that, I mean not just Christianity, but Judaism and Islam have depleted our imagination. 
They they have and they haven't. Christianity is very, very good at having its cultural cake and eating it. So, for example, preserving the literature and art of the ancient world while telling people to regard it as an expression of images, fictions, allegories, things that aren't real. Uh, And in that way, it can be incorporated safely. It's interesting you brought up the M word, monotheism. I don't think it's depleted our imaginations, but what I think it's done has sort of altered the way that we relate ourselves to the natural world. So again, I am by no means an expert, but what seems to be recurring themes in sort of the old religions or paganisms is a very broad term, is that nature has some kind of magical influence over people and that there is meaning and purpose in the natural world, in natural events. Whereas particularly in the Abrahamic faiths, that is slightly shifted because you have this all-seeing, all-powerful, all-moral deity, this one supernatural watcher who sort of polices your moral behaviour. And that shifts slightly the relationship that one has with the natural world, I think. So I wouldn't say that Christianity or monotheism has depleted our imaginations, but I think it's certainly had profound effects on how we relate and perceive the natural world. I think certainly it can do that. And that's been a very strong modern theme, especially in the last 50 years. As you can imagine, it's a lot more complicated on the ground, especially the ancient ground. Ancient pagans, unlike Christians, assumed there were divinities inhabiting the natural world, that it was a spiritually alive place. But that didn't stop them in practice degrading it to the great speed themselves when it suited them to do so. And this is the case with humanity across the earth. Humans everywhere become ecologically aware and adept when they suddenly hit crisis. So if you're a Polynesian islander and you're in the first settlers, what you do is wreck the environment. And then a few generations down the line, realizing you're about to starve, you learn ways of conserving it. And that's kind of the pattern for planet Earth. Likewise, Christianity does have a message about Adam as a steward for God and looking after the natural world. And that sense of responsible stewardship can be a a Christian approach to a new and better ecology, even while dealing with a transcendent deity that doesn't doesn't actually inhabit the natural world. One aspect of your work, Ronald, has been to focus on modern paganism rather than the ancient traditions. I wonder if you could share a little bit about where pagan is today, and one uses these different terms, Wicca, Druidism, and and so on. Paganism today, paganism with a capital P, is a complex of recently appeared religions, uh, the earliest appearing in the 40s and 50s, the 20th century, that draw on images and ideas from the pre-Christian ancient world in order to focus on three basically inspiring movements. And the first is feminism, recognizing the divine feminine and having a, an important role, or indeed, in some cases, a sole role for priestesses rather than priests. Second is environmentalism, as we've indicated earlier, recognizing a, an imminent and inherent divinity in nature and honouring it as such. And the third is an authentically ancient idea that deities don't give humans laws or rules. In many ways, they're not terribly interested in And so it's really for humans to contact them and make a relationship with them while honouring what they represent in the natural world. So ultimately, the morality of paganism 
is one of self-expression and personal realization while doing as little damage in the process to anybody or anything else as possible. And it's this self-limiting ethic, this imperative to recognize other people's freedom to enjoy themselves and express themselves equally that makes it a responsible social ethic. And do you think that perhaps this is where some distrust towards pagans comes from? This idea that we have this assumption that we can only be good if we have God. So as Dostoyevsky said, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. And this is certainly something that underlies religious people's attitudes towards atheists. They mistrust them on this moral domain. And perhaps that's also something that's at play when people think about negative connotations with paganism, that it's this lack of morality that people are afraid of. I think you're absolutely right. I also think, and this is one of the few points which I'd ever sound intemperate, that is a classic confidence trick. Because one of the effects of increasing secularization of societies is to show they don't collapse into anarchy. In fact, they're run about as well or as badly as deeply religious societies are, and they are as functional. In many ways, religions have a kind of colliding or a subjective relationship with ethics in general. You can find most ethical systems incorporated in a religion at one point or another. But the real problem, Kitty, with the popular attitude to paganism is that it is so soaked in biblical and early Christian images. If you ask the uninformed and faintly worried modern person what pagans do, it's really one of two things. Either they commit blood sacrifices, probably of human beings, or else they take off their clothes and they dance. They get naked. Those two things to Christians are the negation of responsible civilized religious behavior. They're the no-nos. And so they're kind of heaped on pagans. The accusation of human sacrifice, of course, was a charge alleged against early Christianity and Judaism. So presumably it was just going around. You're absolutely spot on. It's specifically something with which the Romans charged anybody whom they didn't like. The modern irony is that the Roman accounts of it happening among peoples who have left no direct modern descendants, like Carthaginians and Druids, tend to be believed. But when the same charge is made with the same strength and often by the same writers against people who've left very powerful modern descendants, like Christians and Jews, we reject it completely. And with very good reason, because we know about what Christians and Jews got up to in the Roman Empire, and it wasn't human sacrifice. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Kitty Alone and Ronald Hutton, and we're talking about paganism. For all its austerity as a religion, Islam harbours some surprising beliefs that go beyond the monotheistic. Jinn are perceived as mysterious creatures with supernatural powers, but also some human characteristics. There are different theories about how belief in these spirits started. And here's Muhammad Ahmed speaking on the Naked Reflection show, Magic Thinking. One of the most famous is that they were spirits that inhabited this vast desert that humans can never really truly comprehend the vast nature of the desert. And it was here that these kinds of myths and stories began. And, you know, obviously there are strange phenomena that do occur in the desert, uh, you know, from mirages to, you know, strange animals and nothingness. 
if somebody is kind of lost in a desert and you do see a mirage or something that's there, but it's not really there, that is the, you know, fertile ground for this sort of development into conceptions of jinn. Given what Muhammad says, it's quite possible that the idea of jinns actually predate Islam. Kitty, as outreach manager for the Wolf Institute, you're charged with improving understanding between Christians, Jews and Muslims. That's hard enough. But is there a case now for reaching out to the pagan community? A lot of interfaith work, as we call it, is very much driven by the demographics of a local community. So should there be large Sikh communities, large Muslim communities, that'll be sort of the dynamic that you have for any interfaith work. What I do think is important is bringing paganism to a much broader discussion between faiths. Because as we've alluded to, underneath or underpinning a lot of the particularly Abrahamic faiths is pagan ideas, pagan rituals, pagan observances. So yes, paganism in whichever form it chooses to take should be an important voice in a discussion between religions. But in terms of the actual numbers on the ground, it would surprise me if there were sort of a very large pagan community that suddenly came into conflict with the local Sikh community, for example. Kitty, have you come across pagan communities engaged in in interfaith work or not? I have. I have met the head of the British Druids at the Interfaith Network AGM, who was arguing, in fact, for precisely what you're suggesting. He wanted more representation of the pagan voice in interfaith activities on the national level. I don't actually know the numbers. I mean, perhaps Ronald might do, but I don't know how many people sort of identify as pagan in the UK. I can help out there because I did a count in the late 1990s. I suspect the numbers have grown a bit since then. The censuses we receive aren't awfully helpful because a lot of pagans simply don't take part in them. Having left over fear of prejudice or persecution if they become too visible. But in the 1990s, I counted pagan druids, which I could because they grouped together in orders which keep membership lists. And I noticed that at pagan gatherings and festivals that I attended, the pagan druids were outnumbered by pagan witches by a factor of approximately five to three. So around 6,000 pagan druids, which is what I found, would mean 10,000 initiated pagan witches. And these were all considerably outnumbered at the larger gatherings by this skirt of non-denominational pagans, people who believed in the same kind of deities, kept the same kind of festivals. In other words, they were practising but didn't identify with a particular denomination or tradition of pagan. So for the late 90s, I came up with a probable round figure in the United Kingdom of 110 to 120,000 pagans. Now, this is a tiny percentage in the total population. But when you look at figures for other religious denominations, it actually isn't. So now less than a million practicing Anglicans and the other Christian denominations smaller than that. So paganism is now a player on the scene of people who actually have hands-on faiths. We're sort of seeing this shift away from people who are identifying with organised religions. The catch-all term is spiritual but not religious. That's how people now sort of define themselves. So yes, paganism is becoming more important in these interreligious interfaith discussions because being such a broad category 
people who are potentially spiritual, you know, may be intuitively drawn to paganist beliefs. In fact, more so perhaps than Christianity or Islam or Judaism. So yes, it's not going to go away. It hasn't done for thousands of years, and I doubt it will. Um, it's very pervasive. Gosh, that's a wonderful, ringing statement. I'm delighted to hear it. I think in many ways, what modern Western people are starting to want is a religion you can have in your back garden or your front room, which is why in Christianity, the house church movement has seen so much growth in recent years. Or even, again, staying with Christianity, small churches that actually serve particular communities gathering together as people in the way that other people gather in clubs and societies. And paganism has an easy market there because it's precisely the kind of religious tradition you can carry on in a back garden or uh, in a living room or a basement or meeting up in the local park. It's funny you say the local park, actually, because in my local park, there is a little pagan almost shrine to COVID. People have left sort of ribbons on the trees. They've painted stones. They've sort of drawn rainbows everywhere. And for my money, I'd say that's quite pagan in flavour. You're not going to make us all pagan, are you? Just because I draw a few stones and I put them around or I leave some flowers where somebody's perished on the road. Does that suddenly make me pagan? I'll come in to support both of you, you and your alarm, Ed, and uh, you and your generosity, Kitty, uh, because every single one of the trappings and the events that are occurring in your local park there at the, the shrine, the memorial, are pagan in origin. They're all ancient, and they all come directly from the pagan ancient world, but they're also transferable to other faiths or none. So all that Christianity took from the original uh, followers of Jesus was the central cult of Jesus Christ and the Father God. And Christianity took on from paganism the shape of its church buildings, altars, incense, hangings, images. The entire physical environment is taken from paganism, but puts the service for totally different theology. And that kind of transference is very easy when you're dealing with such ancient forms and rituals. Paganism doesn't work for, for example, people who feel totally trashed by life and need to turn to a power higher than themselves to redeem and help them. It doesn't help people who have abiding sense of sin or inadequacy and a need for redemption as well as restoration. Paganism tends to appeal to people who are highly literate, very bookish or very active on the internet, very curious, quite bolshy in the sense they don't like to be dictated to in any way. People who want freedom to form their own opinions and form their own groups and have a fair amount of self-confidence. And that's a particular type of human personality. It's not everybody. But there are a lot of people like that, and some of them will always become pagans. And I'd say also that there are some features of paganism that sort of are intuitively attractive to human beings. And they sort of trigger these little cognitive biases that we have. So things like teleological thinking, for example, the idea that nature has a purpose, that there's sort of meaning behind a particular natural event doesn't occur in a vacuum it isn't imbued with meaning also the idea that there is sort of animism that there is life inside objects that are stationary inside 
objects such as trees, for example. This idea sort of is very intuitive to humans and it sort of taps into what we call um, our surveillance detection mechanism. So humans are very, very good at picking up on cues of being looked at or cues of being watched. And this is fertile ground if you have beliefs in sort of nature, having eyes, being able to see you, being able to interact with you. Then, of course, this is going to light up parts of your brain like a Christmas tree, another pagan symbol, obviously. So, yes, I think it's pervasive and has lasted for as long as it has and will continue to last because precisely for those reasons, it triggers very intuitive mechanisms in our brain. You put that beautifully. I'd also argue that there are particular aspects of modern society that make paganism particularly attractive. Paganism largely embraces a magical view of the world, a re-enchanted view of the world. It goes off from seeing the world as animate, as full of natural spirits. But also as a result of that, the magic of science, the magic of the internet is often very appealing to pagans. In fact, in the 90s, if there was one occupation which pagans tend to have more than any other. It was computer programmer. You know, this is completely spot on because the head of the British Druids, I think, worked in IT. On to ask Ronald, what do pagans do at a ritual? Wiccans get together and in general, like other pagans, they create a sacred space within which to work. They don't have a bespoke temple or sacred grove. They actually move their sacred ground with them. So they're drawing on the old tradition, uh, which has come down from Egypt in the ancient world, of ceremonial magic. which You cast a circle, you call in spirits to help you from the four quarters of it, the east, south, west and north, and then you get to work. But what different pagans then do in their circle is very different. So, for example, the great religious party trick of Wicca is to invite a goddess or god to come to the circle and actually enter the body of one of the people there. So they become a medium for us and they speak as the goddess or the god, which of course, for somebody who believes profoundly in the goddess or god concerned, is an overpowering religious experience. Druids tend to honour the natural world and the land a lot more and to relate much more obviously to the ancient peoples who shaped it. That seems a good place to leave this podcast. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Kitty Alone and Ronald Hutton. And thanks to you too for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? They're all available for your listening pleasure. There's a good one on magic thinking, for example. You may also want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some more guests. Guests.